The Jews loved their temple. The temple was the center of their religious lives, the place where God promised to meet them, right there in the midst of his people, in the midst of his city, in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has always been called a shining city on a hill. Uh, they said that when the sun rises behind the limestone buildings, it, it even looks in that moment like there's a, a golden ribbon strapped around the neck of, of the Lady Jerusalem, they say. But in, G, in the day and age when Jesus lived, the Romans had, by their rule over Jerusalem, had diminished her glory in a sense, as they ruled over her streets and her people. Many Jews only visited uh, their great city and the great temple once a year during Passover. And, and this Passover week was at the center of the, their calendar. It was the highlight of their year. They would save their money to buy a lamb or a calf, or if money was short, a pigeon or even a dove. Something to offer God as a sacrifice as they came to worship. Came to make atonement for their sins. To show that their, their hope was, that, uh, was in the mercy and forgiveness of God. And the temple was the center of this glorious activity. You know, we don't know how often Jesus attended Passover in Jerusalem before this year. We know that he went when he was 12 years old. We're not sure if he had gone before then or if he went even maybe every year after that. We're not told about those things. Um, but we know that when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem on this occasion, he steps into the temple and his anger over what is happening there overflows into action. Action that puts him on the radar of the Jewish religious leaders. Action that ultimately leads to his death just a few years later. With that in mind, let's read about this event. We're going to read from John chapter 2, uh, verses 13 down through 22. This is the very word of God. Let's give great attention to the reading of it. Uh, John 2, 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, would you help us today to understand who you are, who we are, why that matters. God, as we look at the anger of Jesus here today, would you help us to see his righteousness, his love for you, his love for worship, his love for people, and that we might, um, in following him, love people the way that he does, and love you the way that we should, love worship the way that you intend. Help us to see your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Jesus is passionate for the worship of God. That's one of the first things we see when we think about the passion of Jesus. We're going to look today at the, the passion of Jesus and then the, the promise of Jesus. 
You know, the Jewish law set forth the appropriate ways to worship God, including feast days and other special occasions where were set aside for the worship of God. And as I've already noted, the, the Passover feast was kind of one of the highlights, if not the highlight, of the Jewish calendar. And so when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he knows that while this, with all the Jews coming into the city, serves as sort of a family reunion of sorts with everyone seeing their old friends and gathering together with their, their family and those sorts of things, um, this is ultimately a time that is meant to be focused on the worship of God. That's why he's so angry when he sees that the market is set up in the temple courts. You know, the existence of the market itself doesn't seem like it would be offensive to Jesus. There, those who were coming from out of town needed a place to purchase, to purchase the animals or birds that they would be offering. But traditionally, this market had been set up outside of the temple, not inside the temple complex. Um, we were told that you know, there's there's evidence even that that the high priest in charge of the market was now for a simple dove or pigeon charging about 75 cents for what was previously charged about four cents for outside. And so we see that the moving of the market into the, the, the place has multifaceted reasons for Jesus to kind of get angry, and well, not kind of get angry, but to get angry and do those things. Um, and oftentimes, People brought animals from home or bought them from a cheaper source. But what had happened is, and, and over the course of time, those who approved the animals for sacrifice would only approve those that were bought in the, triple, in the temple complex. They would declare the others unworthy. So what's going on? They've created a monopoly. They're gouging the people, many of whom are poor and, and are, are trying to find the right means and the ability to worship God. Because this is taking place inside the temple walls, it made it even more egregious. And Jesus is angry. He's angry because the existence of the market in this part of the temple meant that the God-fearing Gentiles who couldn't enter the inner courts of the temple complex were being denied a place of worship, a place that had been designated by God specifically for them to do those things. So what that means is when you came into the temple complex, there were different courts or different parts of the temple. The first was the court of the Gentiles. It was the general area where lots of people gathered, and Gentiles were able to go into that court but not to go further. They weren't able to go into the holy place or even the, the most holy place of the temple for sure. Only priests and then the high priest could go there. But Jews were allowed into the court of the temple, beyond the court of the Gentiles, into another court where they brought their sacrifices and brought them to the priest. And Like I said, they were approved and then offered, and then the blood was taken into the temple. But the Gentiles weren't able to go there. And there were, there were God-fearing Gentiles who would come to the temple to worship. They would go there to pray and meditate and think about the things of God and those sorts of things. Uh, and the, the law provided a place for them within that complex to do those things. But one of the things that makes Jesus angry here is that the, the marketplace has been set up in the court of the Gentiles. And so you can imagine to go to a place that you would think is going to be quiet, a place where you can meditate, a place where you can think about the things of God. And within that complex, you've got cows and oxen that are bleeding, goats that are running around, birds that are chirping, auctioneers that are selling things, people exchanging money. There's no way you're going to be able to worship in that spot. And Jesus is angry about it. Isaiah says that this, the temple is to be a house of worship for all the nations. But by this marketplace being present, only the Jews were able actually to go into the temple and worship. The Gentiles have been, their place has been taken away in that moment. One thing we do need to note here as we think about the anger of Jesus is that 
this occasion in the temple. And then there's another cleansing of the temple later on. We'll talk about that as well. Um, but many of us at times, I think, believe that Jesus's anger gives us sort of carte blanche to justify most of the anger in our lives. We go, Jesus was angry, so I can be angry. You know, there will be moments in our lives when righteous anger is appropriate. We could go around the room right now and name many times and places where we would be absolutely justified to be angry. We just talked about human sex trafficking. It should make us angry. New York and Virginia and other states are in the process of legalizing abortion up till the day of birth. It should make us angry. But we need to be careful that we're not quick to anger or unjustified in our anger. How, how was Jesus able to go into the courts and overturn tables and make a whip and drive people out and do those things? In part because his anger is righteous, meaning that he is holy. He understands not just what is going on in that moment as he looks across the temple, but he knows the hearts and the intentions of all those who are doing those things in a way that none of us could ever know. And so while there may be times where we're justified in our anger, we're not like Jesus who was perfectly capable of being angry without sinning. You nor I have that ability. Here are a few things that the Bible has to say about anger. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. You get that? Good sense makes one slow to anger. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God may at times produce some anger in men, but the anger of man does not, does not produce the righteousness of God. And so, be angry without sinning. That's the command, right? How hard that is. So be quick to anger, quick to speak. Don't use the perfect anger of Jesus to justify our imperfect anger. That's the point. All right, when we think about the passion of Jesus, we know that there's passion there for God the Father, passion for his work and his will, passion for the worship of his people, passion for love for people. But passion also has another meaning uh, in our society and in, in our world. And this Passover week points to another Passover week, a few weeks and a few years in the future, a week that we come, have come to call the Passion Week or the Week of the Passion of Christ. The, the cleansing of the temple is the first public controversy that Jesus has caused. He had his first miracle there at the wedding of Cana where he turned the water into wine. We looked at that last week. This is his first public controversy where he storms into the temple, makes a whip out of some cords and overturns the tables and drives the animals and the money changers out of the temple and those sorts of things. Um, this is his first public controversy. His last act of public controversy will happen again in the same place when he again gets angry in the week of in the midst of Passover week at the fact that the temple, two years later, three years later, is still a market. And on that occasion, it leads to his death. Jesus has been a marked man since this first cleansing of the temple. The Jewish religious leaders would always remember this man who stormed into the temple, into their market, 
disrupted their prophets and pointed out their hypocrisy. They didn't like it. He's a marked man. They're out to get him from this day forward in many ways. But when he has the gall to do it again, a few years later, they have had enough. Their anger moves them to send him to the cross. They crucify the Son of God because he is disrupting their lives, their prophets, exposing their hypocrisy, standing up for the people that they are taking advantage of. You know, no one understood what Jesus was talking about when he answered the Jewish leaders' questions here about his authority. They asked, you know, about what sign or what authority, that's what they're really asking, do you show us for doing these things? They wonder, where, where do you get the right to come in here and do this? And, of course, Jesus answers them and says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They were astonished by the audacity of this statement. It had taken them 46 years to build the temple in history tells us that they weren't even finished with it then. It would be 30-some-odd more years, AD 64, before the temple complex is actually finished. Of course, that's six years before the Romans decided to destroy it and knock it down completely. And so this temple is this magnificent work that's taking this long period of time, and Jesus has the audacity to say, tear down this temple and I will build it back in three days. This is the, not the kind of statement that they would easily forget. And John lets us know that he didn't forget either. He's one of the disciples who's there at that moment. But in John's gospel here, we get the privilege of having an insider tell us the story of these events of Jesus' life because he's able to sort of take us aside and sort of whisper in our ear what is really going on. You know, like in a play where all the action kind of stops and the the lights go down and the spotlight comes on one of the actors who kind of steps out of his character for a moment and says, let me give you some background about what's going on here. John does that for us. He kind of pulls us aside at this point and whispers in our ear, Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He's talking about his own body. Guess what? John didn't understand that either this day in the temple. He only came to understand it later on when he saw what was going on. And so he gives us this insider knowledge about what's going on behind the scenes. He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. I'm at Jesus. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples. So we're talking three years later now, after the next cleansing of the temple, when Jesus has been on trial, he's been arrested and, and tried and found guilty of blasphemy, and he's been wrongly guilty of blasphemy, but then he's been nailed to a cross, he's been laid in a grave, he's been dead, and now he's risen from the dead. And John and the disciples, thinking about this, after all this has happened, they're sitting around and basically they're saying, you remember that time back at the beginning when we first started following Jesus and he cleansed the temple and he said, tear down this temple and I'll raise it again? This is what he's talking about. His body is a greater temple than the temple. The temple in Jerusalem points to Jesus and to him and his work. The place where the sacrifices took place were the physical temple in, in Jerusalem, right? That's where people were commanded to go. But it was just a signpost pointing to something greater. What was the greater? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb who is ultimately sacrificed for our sins. He is the fullness and the fulfillment of all that was happening in the temple. All of those sacrifices, all of those Oxen, all of those cattle, all of those sheep, all of those doves and pigeons pointed to Jesus, the one who was the perfect sacrifice. The, the guys in the temple could judge those, those animals for their 
purity and their righteousness and all of those sorts of things. And they did that. They had a standard that they used. But guess what? As perfect as they might have been, none of them were perfect. But Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, was the one to whom they pointed. And so now Jesus is here as the, the work of the temple is actually done and completed when he is nailed to the cross. When he is, his blood is shed for the cleansing of sins. When he has laid down his life, the work of the temple has come to completion. That's signified by the fact that when he died, what happened? The, the veil, the curtain in the temple that separated the, the holy place, the common place, from the most holy place where only the high priest could go and make atonement for sins once a year was ripped apart, symbolically showing that now access to the holiness and the presence of God is available to everyone who believes. Not just the one that represents the people, but because the greater representative of the people, Jesus, our great high priest, has actually made final atonement for our sins. He died once for all, for all who believe. And so we have this promise from Jesus here that lets us know what this anger in the temple is really about. It's about him. He is the one to whom the temple and the worship in the temple are pointing. He is the one in whom this Passover finds its true meaning. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one that will ultimately be sacrificed at the end of another Passover week that will change how we worship forever. No longer will God's people have to travel to Jerusalem to make sacrifices. The one sacrifice has been made. No longer will God's people have to rely on priests to go into the Holy of Holies and meet with God on their behalf. When Jesus is crucified, the presence of God is available to everyone. No longer will God's people have to fear death. The one who is the true Lamb of God will rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and live forevermore. And all who trust in Him will live forever with Him. I can imagine John looking back on this event and remembering how confused he was when Jesus starts storming through the temple courts, disrupting this Passover week and all the celebrations and causing havoc and even announcing that he would do this crazy work of rebuilding the temple in three days. And I can also imagine the smile that must have come across John's face to be able to whisper here as he's writing his gospel, to pull us aside and whisper to us, to those of us who also know the end of the story and to rejoice that the one whom he had always longed for, because we know that John seems to have grown up looking for the Messiah, for him to look back on this occasion and go, there he is. There he is, the one that our hearts have longed for. It was right there in his presence. What joy John must have had to write down all these confusing things Later on, with the benefit of being able, being on the other side of the empty tomb, having spent those days with Jesus, especially those days between his resurrection and his ascension, when he was helping them put all the glorious pieces of this great puzzle together, making sense of all these curious things that Jesus had done along the way, all the things that had confused them, God, Jesus stops and says, let me explain to you what all this means. And they got it. These simple fishermen upended the world. What, did, what does it say in Acts about them? It says, it was evident that they had been with Jesus. 
Like John, what joy we should have in knowing that the Lord who who turned the water into wine at a party only to turn around a few days later and cause chaos in the temple is the one who promises that if we will trust in him and his sacrifice on our behalf, he is the one who will give us eternal life. He's the one who gives us everlasting joy. We're all chasing it. We're all chasing fulfillment. We're all chasing meaning. We're all chasing true life. And it's found in Jesus. Jesus came into this world to make himself known. And he came so that we as well could be rightly known. He came to reveal our sin and our shame, just as he did for the Sadducees in the temple during Passover week when he exposed their hypocrisy, called them out for their sin, and they're taking advantage of people. But for those who trust in Jesus alone, he doesn't leave us in our shame. He invites us into his glory. And it's a glory that never fades, that endures beyond the glory of Jerusalem, beyond the glory of the temple, beyond the glory of this entire world. It's a glory that makes us pure and righteous, that makes us worthy of the kingdom of God. We have no righteousness within ourselves, but God gives us the righteousness of Christ. It's a gift that comes from Him through Jesus and through the work of the Holy Spirit. We're made righteous. So what do we do with this? <coughs> Jesus storming in the temple, overturning things, doing all this, this stuff that on the surface seems sort of crazy. What do we do? Well, I think we need to look at ourselves. Maybe we find ourselves today like the Sadducees. We're tempted to use God to make a dollar. We use the temple to put money in our bank account. Maybe you put one of those little Jesus fishes, those ichthus things on your car, not because you love Jesus, but because you know people around here love Jesus and might spend money with you instead of your, you know, your, comp your competition. What's that? Using Jesus to make a dollar. Not, not that there's anything wrong with fish. You know, the Sadducees were great at outward religion. Maybe outward religion is all that you have when it relates to Jesus. You're so good at it that people praise you for it and even give you positions of leadership and ministry or in the church or somewhere. They say, oh, you're, you're so godly. But all you know that in your heart, all you have is outward religion. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were great at religion. What we're going to see as we travel through the life of Jesus, his harshest words, his outpouring of anger is reserved for the most religious of the people. Maybe you're like the poor people at the temple who aren't able to bring a lamb or a cow. On a good day, a meager dove is all you can afford, and you're ashamed, and deep down you wonder if you're really acceptable to the holy and righteous and perfect God. The anger of Jesus in this passage reminds us primarily of a few things. Jesus loves God and the worship of God. He wants that to be done rightly. He wants it to be available and accessible to people. He loves God and the worship of God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. But it also reminds us that he loves the most poverty-stricken and unworthy saints with a passion that would turn the temple upside down to make sure that they know that they are accepted, that there is a Father who longs to love them, pour out His grace on them, on us. For it's not them, it's us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all are poor 
and need the riches of Christ. The gospel is good news. Good news. That's what it means. Good news to who? Good news to everyone. To all the world. Every tongue and tribe and nation and language. To the rich. To the poor. To the religious. To the irreligious. To everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Salvation comes. From the repentant Sadducee who turns away from taking advantage of the poor to worship Jesus. To the one who carries the burden of seeming unworthiness. Jesus invites us to come. All of us. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to, in light of this invitation of Jesus to come, we're going to sing, Jesus, I come. That's my hope for us. That, that whether we're self-righteous Pharisees or, or humble and humiliated peasants, how, regardless of how we see ourselves, that we would run to Jesus. He is our only hope. Let's pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for being our God. We thank you for loving us. For even through the anger of Jesus, opening up our lives and our eyes to your justice and mercy that you do love us and you love that you love to call us to worship. You love to make ways for us to worship. You love for us to turn from our sin and come unto you. For it pleases you when sinners repent. We're told that all of heaven rejoices because one sinner repents. Would you help us to live in repentance and faith? God, we're thankful that you save everyone. <coughs> from the Pharisees and the Sadducees to the peasants with the simple dove. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you help us to call upon you now in faith, in righteousness, not just outwardly, but from the heart. Would you change our hearts that we would love you and trust in you for our salvation? For you alone can save. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.